Secret Library podcast is brought to you in part by the generosity of our Patreon supporters. To help keep the show running and get access to solo episodes and behind-the-scenes details, including often who guests are in advance, check out patreon.com slash secretlibrary. This is the Secret Library podcast. Welcome to season three, The Nourished Writer. My guest today is Tana French. She is the author of eight novels, including In the Woods, The Likeness, The Witch Elm, and The Searcher, out now. Her books have won awards, including the Edgar, Anthony, McCavity, and Barry Awards, the Los Angeles Times Award for Best Mystery Thriller, and the Irish Book Award for Crime Fiction. She lives in Dublin with her family. It was such a delight to get a little window of time with Tana French as she's promoting The Searcher. One of the things I have gotten questions about a lot, which led to the idea of a season on The Nourished Writer, is how to deal with it when you write difficult or dark topics and subjects or when your books take you into more challenging sides of what it's like to be human and the horrible things that can happen out in the world. And those who write mystery, thrillers, and crime fiction have to go into these topics and don't shy away from them. In particular, Tana French's books are as much about the impact crimes have on the characters as they are about the crimes themselves and figuring out the puzzle. In many ways, we remember the characters more than the crime when reading her books. So it was a great delight to speak with her and get to hear how she manages this topic and the thoughts she's had working on writing during a crazy year and how she's getting on over in Dublin. She's Absolutely lovely, and I know you will enjoy hearing this conversation with Tana French. Hi, Tana. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Hi, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start just naming our gigantic elephant in the room, which is you timed... (laughs) probably not intentionally, the completion of writing The Searcher quite perfectly, as I know you finished it, I believe, in February? Yes, end of February, I handed it in and kind of two weeks later, everything went to pieces. So I got very lucky there. Yeah, I wasn't trying to come up with new pieces for a book or anything creative with two little kids running around doing distance learning. I got lucky. Oh my goodness. And so you've spoken about how it's been difficult to keep writing in the months since then. But I'm wondering with all of the the sort of dark topics and ways that you dig into the sort of underpinnings of humanity in all of your books, has it ever been difficult to write before now? And if so, what helped? Well, the most difficult patches, I think, were um, when I had newborns and was really sleep deprived, because you start to realize how much writing depends on your subconscious ticking away when you're not actually doing anything. Your subconscious is still working away in there. And when you're really sleep deprived or when your mind is completely taken up, as everyone else is, is right now as well, with dealing with a global pandemic, there isn't really much subconscious left. It's kind of a smoking wasteland in there. And that makes it very hard to write. And 
in the other times when, yeah, I had newborns and no sleep and my brain wasn't functioning right, I think all you can do is keep going and accept that maybe your first go won't be as good as usual and your second go won't be as good. And you have to just keep editing and re-editing and re-editing until you get to a place where you're happy with the result. Because this is the joy of writing, isn't it? Is that you don't have to get it right first time. You only ever have to get it right once. So if you have to do it 50 times before it's right instead of 20, that's okay. You just have to keep on plugging away at it. That's how I got through the ones where I was sleep deprived with a newborn. I'm finding this a bit harder because um, coming up with anything, I, I didn't have, I hadn't got started on a book yet. And it's hard uh-huh. to come up with any ideas when your mind is totally occupied by trying to cope with the day to day. So I'm sort of winging my way through it and trying to figure out something that will work. Yeah, I'm sure you'll come up with something. I really so enjoyed The Searcher and I was particularly taken by Kyle Hooper as a character that has a backstory that touches on his ambivalence about having worked for the police. So as a as a fellow expat living abroad, I'm I'm wondering how it feels to write a detective who has ambivalent feeling um, ambivalent feelings about the police when you've spoken about wondering about what it means writing detective fiction and what it means to center detectives in this way. Yeah, it's a complicated thing because, as you say, I'm not living in the U.S. and people's experience of the police is very different in different countries. So I wouldn't have wanted to put that at the centre of the book because I don't think I really am in any position to do that. I think it'd be a bit cheeky to be going, right, here's the truth about your police force over there, even though I haven't lived there. And here's what I think is wrong or that you should be doing differently. That would feel a bit cheeky because the Irish experience of the police is very different. There is police brutality. There are definite ambiguities but they're very different from the ones in the US. So it's kind of a part of Cal's backstory, but it's not at the heart of the book. I think it is a viewpoint I wanted to explore in a different way, because as you say, a lot of detective fiction centers the detective. Now, my detectives have mostly They've been in the job for very different reasons. They've got in there from every reason, from trying to fix the fact that there's an unsolved mystery in their own lives, to um, trying to reimpose order on a world that feels very disordered, to, in Cal's case, he needed a steady job and he likes fixing things. And he felt at the time that the police was a job that would let him fix things and make people's lives better, keep them safe. And I deal a lot with what happens when somebody runs into the reality that being a detective may not be what they hoped it would be and may not fulfill the function that they hoped it would fulfill. But still, no matter how you approach it, if you constantly center the detective, you are taking the position that the default viewpoint is that of the authority, the force of order, the force of Uh, reimposing law on chaos and disorder. And that in itself, no matter how much you explore the ins and outs of it, is only one viewpoint. It's interesting to explore different ones. Like that's why in, in Witch Helm, I very deliberately went, okay, in any murder investigation, there's also the point of view of the victim and the witness and the perpetrator and the the suspect. And went for a narrator who, at different points of view in the book, was all of those. And who tries at one point to make himself into the detective, but it doesn't really go to plan. And it's why in Witch Elm, 
the narrator, well, the protagonist, because it's third person, is someone who has tried to reject that role of detective, who has discovered that there is some flaw morally, either within himself or within the job, he can't tell which, that means that it doesn't actually achieve what he went into it hoping to achieve, which is fixing things, keeping people safe, making the world better. And he can't put his finger on where it is within either himself or the entire system within which he operates, that this flaw lies that makes it impossible for the job to be what he hoped it would be. So he's deliberately rejected all of that. He's gone as far as he can from it geographically, mentally, but he gets dragged back in by this kid who wants Cal to investigate the disappearance of his teenage brother. But this time he's a cop without any of the, the trappings of being a cop. He has no, no gun on the most basic level. He has no inside sources. He can't ask the, the computer guys to look up the victim's phone records. He can't look up criminal records on any of his suspects. He has none of that. He has only himself. He's basically stripped bare of any of the accoutrements of being a detective and has to go, well, what's left when you have none of that and when you didn't want to be a detective right now anyway. He has to re-examine the entire job, what it means and how it functions. And I think the other thing that was fascinating beyond all of that is that he's a cultural outsider navigating mm. a system that has a completely different set of rules to the one he's used to. And I wondered um, how it was to navigate that part of the story because that was so fascinating to me. I always love an outsider character because then we get to follow them and try to understand the system along with them. Yeah, I like outsider characters as well. I think it makes for a very interesting perspective. In this case, because I, I have been reading a lot of Westerns and I like the idea of moving some of the Western tropes to the West of Ireland. I think there are a lot of resonances in the setting. And one of the ones I wanted to move was the idea of the stranger in town. You know how the stranger in town shows up in the Westerns and he kind of strolls into the saloon and maybe he's got a few secrets of his own. And in order to make Cal a real stranger in town, I had to make him from another country because Ireland's like that. Like if he was from the other side of the country, somebody would know somebody who he knew or he would have gone out with a girl from there. His dad would play poker with some of her, something or other. There would be a connection and the village would find it out within an hour and have him placed. So I needed to make him an outsider, outsider, you know, all the way, which meant entailed him being from another country. And the thing about the outsider is that because, as you say, he's coming from a different cultural perspective, he doesn't have any of the assumptions that people who are native to this place have. He notices things that they wouldn't. And because of that, he's a disruptor. He can be a catalyst. Like he, you know, in the Westerns, maybe he's going to shoot the corrupt sheriff and set the town to rights, or maybe he's going to shoot the hero and everything will go down in flames, or maybe he'll get shot himself for sticking in his nose where he's not wanted. But he's going to change things. He's going to bring hidden things to light. He's going to disrupt accepted patterns. And because he's the, it's because he's seeing things from a fresh perspective, it's because he doesn't take anything for granted. And that can be a very interesting way to approach the story from the perspective of someone to whom everything is fresh and new and can't just be taken for granted. So that was a lot of fun to write. I suppose also because I've come from the perspective of often being a cultural outsider in my life and seeing how that affects your perspective. It's a fun one to write. Definitely. And another thing that seems to be fun for you is 
or I assume it must be, given that you don't follow in your series the same character at the center over and over again, as many series do, instead there's a a shift from the centered character from book to book. And I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. how do you engage and connect and build a relationship with a new character and develop that relationship as you put them in a new situation for a new story? Oh, that's a lot of fun. Because to me, that shift sort of cuts to the heart of what I think the arts are about, which is giving us a glimpse into how the world is experienced by different people, giving us a glimpse into the fact that everyone has a very different experience of the world and that all these experiences are real and valid. And when you read a good book or go see a good play or see a beautiful painting, that's your moment of realizing, hang on, the world is so utterly different from other perspectives and those matter and those are real. So that's why I, I, one of the reasons why I started doing that shift between characters going, hang on a second, there isn't just one way to see this world that I've set up. There might be other ways. And it does make it very interesting, the shift between books, because to take the most obvious example, right? In Faithful Place, the narrator is Frank Mackey. And there's a supporting character called Scorcher Kennedy, who, Kennedy, who in Faithful Place, he's this very uptight, pompous, rule-bound git, basically. And the reason he's presented that way is because Frank, the narrator, needs to see him that way. He's not much of a rules guy himself, but also something has just basically been a huge upheaval in his life. And until he finds out who did it, he needs an enemy to take things out on. And he picks Scorcher as the the enemy who he projects all the problems onto. But then in the next book, in Broken Harbor, it kind of became obvious to me that Scorcher was the natural narrator for that. Mm. And if I was going to present him from his own perspective, he couldn't be this uptight everything in triplicate rules lawyer, because nobody is that to themselves. So in spite of the fact that this is, he is very not very much not my kind of person, <laughs> I had to go, right, what makes someone like this? Why would someone feel very deeply that this is the right way to navigate the world? And I ended up thinking about going much deeper into his character and realizing that that had to be the result of very deep damage, scarring, that has made him believe that your mind is not a reliable place. You cannot trust your mind to tell you what's right and wrong. You have to trust outside sources. You have to trust the rules because that's the only way that you can be sure that you're on the right track and you're not going horribly wrong and going to make everything go down in flames. So it's not just that he's this pompous arse who's annoying everyone around him. He has really deep reasons for being who he is. And to me, that's the fascinating part about switching perspective is finding out why are these people the way they are? What's different in their own perspective on themselves from the way that the previous character saw them from outside? How do our own needs and biases shape the way we see people and what lies behind the things we see. So fascinating. Have you ever found this difficult to shake? Like, as you said, this character is someone who is not your kind of person, but with all of the people who've made such difficult choices that lead to such controversial results, have you ever found it difficult to shake them off or separate them? from yourself as you're writing? 
Because I know many people ask when they write in, you know, oh, I've been working on a scene and it's really painful, horrible material and I don't know how to get out of it. And it's very hard to get away. Well, the characters, not so much. I think partly because um, I tend to write characters who are very different from me. I haven't had much in common with any of them because that to me is most interesting. You know, I'm, I'm me all day long. What's interesting <laughs> is being someone else for a while. But also because I come from an acting background and actors have to learn fairly soon that you need to leave the character on the stage or in the rehearsal room because otherwise you're just going to mess up your own life. It's not a healthy balance if you're, you know, playing King Lear all day and you bring that home with you, that's not exactly going to be good for your home life. <laughs> so you need to be able to slam the door, leave it behind. So I already had practice in that. Um, in terms of writing scenes, like there were scenes in Broken Harbor that were absolutely no fun to write. A lot of Broken Harbor was absolutely no fun to write. And I, I took a lot more breaks while I was writing that one than I did mm. when I was writing any of the others. Because, yeah, you need to go and... and take a walk, clear your head, go, just, yeah, you need to slam that door between you and the work more often if you're writing something that's really not fun to play with mentally. But again, once you're good at slamming that door, which is a necessary thing, I think, for anybody who's in the arts, you need to be able to close that door between you and the work. And once you're good at doing that, it's fine. But you do need to do it. Otherwise, you're going to end up wrecking your head. Definitely. And one of the things that I find noteworthy about the way you write about this material is that there isn't, at least I don't perceive one, a, a degree of judgment about the, the choices that the characters have made. Mm. And even if characters are very different people than us, it's hard not to have an opinion about what they've done or why they've done it. And I'm I'm wondering about that perspective, if that's how you experience it and how you hold these choices that we might not make in our own lives and watching them play out in the book. Well, that's another acting thing is your character is always right. No matter who you're playing, nobody ever thinks that they're the bad guy or that they're stupid or that they're making a horrible decision. They just think that they're doing their best for perfectly good reasons. And you have to, if you're acting or if you're writing, you have to take that same viewpoint, regardless of how completely that you think your character is being awful or is being an idiot, because otherwise you wind up with preachy books or preachy plays. I mean, we've all seen that movie or that play or read that book where you can feel the author there wagging their finger at us and telling us, and you know that what this character <laughs> is doing is very, very wrong, don't you? you know? And they're awful because they're patronizing to us. You know, the reader, the audience are perfectly capable of making our own decisions, thank you very much. But also they're the author getting in the way. And my job as a writer is the same as it was as an actor, which is to get out of the way of the characters. The less I'm in there, the better. This is not supposed to be about me, about my feelings, about my morals. I'm not meant to be the focus of attention here. The characters are. And if I start intruding by moralizing and by telling you, um, you know, this character's wrong here, right? Then I'm intruding. It's this little voiceover in the background going, the author just had to make her feelings known here. So my job is to give the characters their space and show how they feel that their actions are necessary, justified, inevitable, whatever it is, the best they can do maybe, and then let the readers make up their own minds. Because readers aren't stupid. They're perfectly capable of thinking something through and going, Actually, 
I see why that character did that, but I think that was a really crap thing to do. Or going, yeah, I think that character probably made the right decision. It's not up to me to make that call for the reader. It's up to me to lay out the complexities behind the decision. And, and there always are complexities. No decision in life is, is very simple and black and white and right and wrong. It's up to me to lay out those complexities and then let the reader make their own decisions about it. I think that's the trickiest thing too, is like, how much information do we need to include? And then mm. how much do we leave and trust them to figure out on their own, which I think is particularly tricky when you're dealing with anything in the mystery genre. Oh, yeah, because you have to balance it, don't you? Because you don't want everybody going, oh, well, I know exactly what happened in chapter two. But at the same time, you don't want people going, wait, what? Why would they do that? That makes no sense at all. So you have to balance it. And and I think it's quite tricky, especially when you're writing, which I do, very psychological-based mystery, where the reason tends to lie deep inside someone's head or in many people's heads or within the interactions between people, because you have to make sure that not only does the solution hold up in practical terms, like anything that you use in your answer has to be firmly seeded within the earlier stages of the book, but it also holds up in psychological terms. You have to make sure that the characters are consistent, that their reasons for doing the things are consistent. It's not that someone's going, hang on a second, but she felt so differently about that earlier on. How could she possibly feel this way? You have to make sure that the audience are brought on the journey with the narrator or the protagonist. I think for me, it probably helps that I, I don't outline. I don't mm. know how a book is going to go when I jump into it. Now, this has its downsides because <laughs> I, big time, I'm kind of in awe and in envy of the writers who have it all plotted out and they know what's in every chapter because they know there's going to be a book in there. Whereas I'm sort of diving in and just hoping that there's going to be a book at the other end. But the plus side, I, I think and I hope, is that I'm getting surprised along the way. I'm having moments when I'm going, oh my God, of course this character does this. Or of course this minor character who I threw in there back in chapter two is going to be crucial to the action coming up in chapter 10. But because I'm surprising myself with that along the way, I'm hoping that there's that sense of revelation and that sense of everything clicking into place for the readers as well. Hopefully, if I bring them along with me, right. I, I, I hope that that helps towards that pattern. Definitely, I think. And I am totally fascinated by the process of going into something that reads so intricately and yet knowing, you know, you didn't know exactly how it would go at the beginning. So what <laughs> no do idea. you think is necessary to know in order to start? Because I think some people wait forever thinking they have to know everything before they're allowed to write a single word. So when do yeah. you start? Well, I think, you know, for some people that works. Some people have to plan, have everything clear in their heads before they get started. I think a lot of it's a matter of figuring out what works best for you. But as you say, it can be really paralyzing. You're going, no, it's not perfect in my head yet. I can't start it. For me, I'm the opposite. I have usually a, a main character, a very strong sense of the main character. I have a core location. Like in this one, it was the, the ramshackle little 1930s cottage that he's fixing up mm -hmm. and I have a really basic premise like in this I was like okay it's a 
American policeman who's taken early retirements to the west of Ireland, and then this local kid starts bugging him to find out what happens happened to his brother. And that was it. That was all I had. And I dove in and sort of figured it out from there. Now, for me, it's because it, it plot stems from character. So I kind of have to get to know the characters by writing them before I know who would do what and why. And it makes for a lot of rewriting mm. when I suddenly go, oh, doy, of course she did that. So that means I'm rewriting chapters two and three. But it's the only way I know how to work. And I think if I did try to get it perfect, it would paralyze me. So I think it's, for me anyway, it works well to be happy with the messiness of it, to accept that when I start out, I'm going to get a lot wrong. But it's okay. I can go back and fix it when I get a clearer sense. When I start, it's about figuring out what I'm doing. And then once I know that, I can work with it. So cool. So how long does it take you from from that point of having this idea of, you know, the retired policeman and the kid to finishing in February? About how long does that take? It's about two years normally for me, two years end to end. And the first few months... I'm not really doing very much with it. There's just an idea kind of knocking around in my head because usually I have the idea for the next book kind of around the time I'm finishing the previous one, like maybe in the last quarter. Because you know how um, there's always a point when you're doing something where your brain decides it's bored and it wants to do absolutely anything else? Like you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I should really clear out the attic or, oh, I wonder where that... Thing, that book that I read 20 years ago has gone or you know, maybe I should brush the cat you know anything your brain will do <laughs> give you an excuse not to do what you're supposed to be doing and one of the things luckily for me that my brain tends to do is come up with an idea for another book and go oh oh, oh you should totally work on this one instead but forget the other one so luckily that comes in useful um and with um when I was writing Witch Elm It was only in the last few weeks of that that sort of a vague idea for the searcher popped up, but usually it's earlier. So it's two years end to end with a book, more usually. That's quite good, I have to say. Yeah, it's because there's a lot of thinking and coming up with all of this. It can, you know, it can take ages. I think people put so much pressure to have it happen really quickly. Yeah, I think for me, that wouldn't work. I was trying early on in my career to tighten it up and I just realized this is not going to work for me. I'm not going to be able to come up with something that I think is is good enough. Also because I write long, like um, The Searcher is my shortest book by a long way, and it's 130,000 words, which is long by most people's standards. I just write long. So if I try to do a book a year, which a lot of people do, it's, it's going to be a train wreck. It's really not going to work. And fortunately for me, my agent and my publishers were understanding about this and went, you know, okay, we would love it if you would do a book a year, but if you can't do that up to standard, we'd rather have one every two years that you figure is up to standard rather than one every year that you think is a car crash. Right, of course. So is there an idea creeping in now or has it been has it been <laughs> a little bit different going this year? <laughs> oh, it's been different going, all right. I've got an idea, but I'm not as far on as I should be. It's still in that stage where you're kind of bouncing it around and seeing what you might do with it. Because the thing about this phase is you need sort of space and almost boredom in order for the idea 
to knock around in there and take shape. You need sort of lots of long walks and time when you're not doing very much and it looks like you're doing nothing, but actually your mind's working away. But everyone's mind in the world is working away at 100% the whole time now. All of our bandwidth is used up. So there's not really much bandwidth left for things to just percolate. So I'm a bit behind where I should be. But, you know, it'll get there in the end. I think it will. And I think we'll all be very willing to wait. So thank (laughs) Thank you you. so, so much for taking the time to talk about this book and your writing process in general. It's, It's really such a delight to speak with you. And thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.